History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Out of office... Hello, I'm Pete. This is Ryan. Hello. And we are not here today, but we are also here today through the magic of radio. How exciting. Yes, so it's a special out-of-office episode. We have pre-prepared a country, time and topic. And let's check it out what that is and just get on with the show. Okay, so Pete, last out-of-office, it was your turn and we did Bahamas. So it's my turn this time. It certainly is. I hope you've got some good stuff for me. Well, let's find out. Uh, let's hit the doors later and find out where it is we're going. Let's check it out. Okay, and so, my country is... Grenada. Grenada, where they make the grenades. Where they all the grenades are. <laughs> super dangerous. <laughs> okay, and time period. And the time period is... Okay, it's 1750 to 1800. Oh, that could go either way. I think that's okay. It feels like you might be all right, but I'm not 100%. Right, okay, well, we'll find out. And my topic. Here we go. Check it out. Topic is. Here we go. Oh, interesting. Panic. (laughs) Panic. That's sort of appropriate, isn't it, at this point? (laughs) (laughs) Panic in Grenada during 1750 to 1800. Well, let's pull the pin on it and see what comes out. Nice. Let's see what I did there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> okay, so panic in Grenada during 1750 to 1800. Where to start? Well, let's start with the name. Grenada. It means pomegranate. Oh, really? Yeah. It's an island country in the West Indies in the Caribbean Sea. So if you're in South America and you were to go north, you'd go past Trinidad and Tobago, and it's just pretty much there. It's part of that archipelago of islands that includes places like St. Vincent, uh, Barbados, St. Lucia, Martinique, Dominica, Guadeloupe, and so on and so on, all the way around in that S-shape curve all the way around to Florida. Ah, the sort of S of paradise. They should call it that. It's made up of a couple of islands. It has got one main island. It has several smaller islands to the north, which include Caracal and Petit Martinique. Is that where the blue drink comes from? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I'm no. disappointed. Cariacou. Oh, Cariacou. Cariacou. So I I don't think it is anyway. Okay. The main island is almost half of it covered in forest. It's famous for its white beaches, its mountains, and its waterfalls. Nice. Yeah, this is a blissful, beautiful place that you might want to go on holiday. But this is a proper island. So the the atolls that we visited before have been very low and the waterfall would be a... Quite the surprise because it's about fifty feet high at best. So these are proper islands with mountains and mountains and hills, and, and yeah, and in fact, those are going to become more relevant than you think. All right. So we'll cover that off in a bit. It is one of the smallest independent countries in the Western Hemisphere. It is only one hundred and thirty-four point six square miles. Uh, that's a three hundred and forty-eight point five square kilometers, which is, I'm sure you're wondering, in relation to France. I was wondering. Yeah, one thousand six hundred and three times smaller than wow, France. Wow, that's a lot of them to a France. It's weeny, and it has a population currently of one hundred and twelve thousand people. Wow, that really is tiny. It's really small. Yeah. Grenada facts. I'm delighted to receive some Grenada facts. <laughs> Here we go. 40% of the world's nutmeg is from Grenada. No way. 40%. Yeah. It's, in fact, it's known as the island of spice. Nutmeg, mace, which is the dried lacy stuff that covers nutmeg, cinnamon, cloves, ginger, all from Grenada. Nice. It's home to the world's first underwater sculpture park. So you can throw on a tank and a respirator and jump down into the into the sea and have a look at some statues and things that are at the bottom of the that's ocean. That's exciting. That's, yeah. a, that's a clever way to bring people to your island as well. Presumably divers love to look at things and right? swim around wrecks and stuff. So exactly. sculpture park, that's awesome. Yeah, there's some great videos of stuff on it. Uh, Granditang. That's a really big orangutan. You'd think so, but it's a lake and it's formed over a dormant volcano and is said to be bottomless because nobody has been able to find its bottom using sonar. Wow. Right? So Super it just deep. goes to the centre of the earth. Or th- right all the way the- through dinosaurs manage it in some way yeah yeah if you wear camouflage which i know you are always want to do you can never get you out of camouflage well i was trying to buy some more recently but i couldn't find any 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. You nearly got me. <laughs> but if you wear camouflage and you are not a soldier, prepare to be arrested. Ooh. It is illegal. What, how, what's the definition of camouflage, though? Where does a flowery shirt start and a camouflage stop? <laughs> flowery shirt. You know my penchant for You love a flowery patterns, shirt. Right? I, I'm, I could be argued to be wearing camouflage in I think situations. something that a soldier might wear. Right. As opposed to a flowery shirt, which okay. I expect they probably wouldn't. So I think you're okay with your flowery shirt. Well, I'm just worried. On. You know, I worry. And you know what? You might want to keep that flowery shirt on if you're in this beautiful island, waterfally <laughs> resort. There are three rum distilleries <gasps> in Grenada. I want to go already. Right? And a favorite drink served in Grenada is the Grenada Rum Punch. So guess what I have made for oh, us. Oh, I love you so much. <laughs> I love rum yeah. so much. All right, let me just get you some beautiful Grenada rum punch. Awesome. This is exciting. He's going to the fridge, coming out with a bowl. It looks like a sort of tequila sunrise. It's got a, a two layers. It's got a bottom layer of kind of an orange color, and then it fades into a yellow, uh, like, a, like a sunrise, I guess. Okay, so you've got your Grenada rum punch. I've got my Grenada It is rum in a punch. giant bowl. Um, you might want to stir it up just to sort of get the ingredients fully mixed up. Uh, let me tell you what's inside. This is pretty straightforward. Can I have a little guess? Yeah, go for it. Rum. Rum is definitely in there. Oranges. Oranges are definitely in there. Beetroot? No, beetroot is not in there. What's the red? The red is watermelon. Oh, lovely. Yeah, which I had to buy one and then blend it and then strain it and just to get the watermelon <laughs> juice. <laughs> not that easy to buy watermelon juice, is it? No, it's not, no. It looks amazing. Can Thank I taste you. it? Do you want to, what else is in there? Pineapple. Oh, yes, And lemons. Oh, a lot of lemons. So basically, it's a health drink. More lemons than you can shake a stick at, basically. Oh, There's a lot of lemons in this. Many lemons. Yeah, right, I'm going to have some as well. All right, let's do it. Ooh. Oh, this is really appropriate for an out-of-office episode where we're clearly on holiday. This right? feels like we're on holiday already. That's what I figured. This is great. Ironically, it doesn't pack a punch. It's just juicy, really. How strong is it? How much is in it? A litre of rum. Right-o. <laughs> <laughs> a litre of rum, a litre of... Uh, everything else and half a litre of lemons half, half a, a litre, litre of lemons <laughs> oh my god yeah, I was like that can't possibly be keeping true. scurvy at so I, I put 300 millilitres in instead of 500 mil okay right while you're drinking this do you want to listen to the national anthem let's have a listen All I'm right. hoping for something really upbeat ideally with steel drums okay here we go with the Grenada national anthem oh I'm getting a heavy Star Wars vibe and a bit of Blackadder. In, doesn't it? Feels like it's coming. Feel like a rousing moment. No, no, they've no. backed away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice little, yeah, nice little change there. I'll be honest, we're two thirds of the way through, and I don't think it's going to kick in. Okay, it's not kicking in, is it? It's a teaser of a anthem. Big finish, surely. Grenada. So there you go. That was the national anthem of Grenada, and that ends that section of the podcast. Here endeth the section. Now we enter the history section. Do all take a seat and enjoy your rum punch. Two million years ago. Whoa, yeah. you really started. When Mary Poppins said begin at the beginning, you took it to heart, didn't you? Yeah, well, that is the beginning. Uh, there's a whole bunch of volcanic activity and there is a bit of land that is formed from the lava. 500 BCE. You've jumped a 2, whole... 2,500 years ago. A lot of material there, but carry on. 
humans are there, we know, because there are some shell middens. Oh, we what love is a shell a, What is a shell midden? Shell midden is a waste disposal dump, basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> old shells. That's exactly it. 300 CE, human settlements are found, and a few artifacts, a few pearls lying around. Humans are there. Early man. Leaving their pearls lying around, apparently. That's what they do. 1200 CE, we have the height of Grenada's indigenous population. That's 87 different unique sites identified. Wow, that's quite a lot for quite a tiny place. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're into the colonial years, and this is 1498, and who would sail past? Columbus Vasco da Gama. Exactly, Christopher (laughs) Columbus. (laughs) Yes, that's definitely one of the ones I said. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, he's on his third voyage ah columbus well just one last job that was columbus's motto <laughs> he cites the island and he says uh, i can't be bothered so he just sails past but he does christen it conception he did love to change the names of places well yeah, that was the first time it had a name so the people living there had no. some sense of it <laughs> no, no one had a name uh, no what should we call this place doesn't matter doesn't matter <laughs> So he calls it Conception, but everyone ignores that. And 30 years later, in 1530, it becomes known as La Granada, after the Andalusian city. Which is named after the pomegranate? Exactly. 1609, we see the first real attempt at a settlement. And so 24 English colonisers arrive, and they're like, hey, this looks like a cool and groovy place. They are subsequently attacked, tortured, and killed. It's not as cool and groovy as they hoped. No. Should have read the small print. Yeah, a few uh, a few of them managed to survive and they have to wait six months on the island for the ships to return and pick them up. So were they just hiding that whole time? Going, yeah. Oh my God. In caves and stuff. Yeah. Oh my Lord. Yeah. yeah. 1649, so 40 years later, the French arrive. 203 French arrive ah. specifically. Well, and well, this has got an excellent track record. How could well, this possibly go wrong? Because of their track record, uh, they actually build an armed fort, <laughs> which they call... Annunciation. Annunciation? Yes. It was a well-spoken form. Well-spoken form. <laughs> and a treaty is agreed with the indigenous chief. They get together with them and they're like, hey, look, we should probably just get along. And so they do. They agree. The island is kind of split between the two different communities. And that's great. And that lasts two months before conflict breaks out uh, with fighting, which lasts for about five years. The French decide to just take over the island at that point, and they pretty much just wipe out all the tribes, with the tribal chief himself choosing to throw him and his tribes off the cliffs rather than surrender. Wow. 25 years later, 1675, Dutch pirates arrive. Ooh. Privateers. And the French uh, are beaten, but they quickly take it back. 1750, we're now heading into our time period. By this point, Grenada has a population of around about 835 people, of which 525 are slaves. We've got three sugar estates, we've got 52 plantations. There's coffee, there is cocoa, there is cotton being introduced. It is now becoming to become like that classic... Slavery crop crop island. Exactly. And that's where we are in 1750. Do you think grenades are named after pomegranates because they have lots of little seeds that blow out like a grenade shrapnel lady of the internet are grenades named after pomegranates because of the little seeds packed inside please thank you (laughs) (laughs) hello this is the voice of the internet the pomegranate is indeed the inspiration for the design of the hand grenade originating from the 12th century anglo-norman word pomegranate the name eventually became pomegranate in modern french Grenades were originally designed in the 8th century when Greek fire was contained in a glass jar that could be thrown at enemies. This design changed in the 15th century, when cast iron grenades were filled with tiny metal balls which mimicked the packed seeds of a pomegranate, but acted as shrapnel when it exploded. The modern weapon hasn't changed much since then. Thank you. Oh, uh, interesting. That is fascinating stuff right so we're in 1750 uh, onwards and i call these the power grab years Ooh, sounds like an olympic event the power grab well you, you'll see because in 1762 the seven years war is happening and the british captured grenada with not a shot fired they just step in and they're like hey this is now ours and the french go okay I assume Um, they stepped in with loads more people and guns. uh, Yeah, I I imagine so. But it was a year later uh, that France officially cedes uh, Grenada to the British. 1767, there is a slave uprising. This is only five years after the British have arrived, and that's quickly put down. Uh, 1779, so 12 years on, the French recapture the island again. They're like, hey, remember us? Remember how you took this off us? Well, we're going to have it back. And uh, by 1783, four years later, back to the British. There's a bit of a tug of war going on here. Yeah, 1789. 
1789, the French Revolution begins. Heads are being chopped. People are in the street. Vive la révolution! Old ladies are knitting. Yes. And that revolution starts spreading across the world, as, as we've covered in other episodes. It makes a lot of people very nervous globally, doesn't it? A lot of people, because there are a lot of revolutions springing up. A lot of people saying, hey, you know what? We should probably be a republic. And so it happens in the Caribbean. Uh, there is a revolution in Haiti, and a black republic is formed. It's a successful revolution. And so rebellion fever just sort of spreads across the Caribbean. Bear in mind, this isn't a slave rebellion. Uh, it was often led by French-speaking free people, often of mixed race. And what they were trying to do is just to create a republic free of the monarchy. They just wanted it to be their own their own place. Freedom for slaves was kind of a consequence of the, their success. Like an awkward fact, I suppose, if given that we've just said we want some equality, we this, this is not a good look that. right now. <laughs> right. So, 1795, two men from Grenada travel to Guadeloupe. They meet with French revolutionaries there, and they are given weapons, they are given training, and they are given hats. Nice! Yeah. I love French the hat. Hats. It's an amazing to I started a revolution and all I got <laughs> was this lousy hat. Yeah. <laughs> and they had the Liberté hat, which is the one that the Smurfs wear. Oh, no way! Yeah. Are the Smurfs revolutionaries? I mean, I guess that must be the implication for them wearing those hats. There's no way that can't that can't just be. But why do they accident? live under the jackboot of Papa Smurf and his oppressor? <laughs> you think they'd have problems? Do you think the blue is relevant as well, like French war blue? Maybe. <gasps> right. We've hit on a whole new thing here. That's in a whole other podcast. Have a podcast. Crazy theories about revolutionary Smurfs. Right, so they get given weapons and training and hats, and they are also told that their general-in-chief of the entire Grenadian rebel army is going to be a chap called Julien Fédon. Fédon. Julien Fédon. Julien Fédon. Julien Fédon is like a super influential chap in Grenada. He is the owner of a coffee and cotton plantation in the middle of Grenada's main island. He is a man of mixed race. He's a free man and has been preparing for an insurrection against the British for years. Fédon is fed up. Yeah, he converts his estate called Belvedere Estate into a fortified headquarters. Nice. He's doing this all surreptitiously, by the way, like no one knows. Well, he's popping up fences and the, the council are saying, well, what's that fence for? Just to keep the stuff. sugar in. <laughs> stuff and <laughs> Sugar things. keeps escaping. <laughs> yeah. He's planting crops for his army to eat years in advance. They're on an island, right? They're not going to be able to get food once they start the rebellion. So he is seriously preparing. So, Fidon's men, they return from Guadeloupe and a rebellion is launched. Nice. On the same night, the 2nd of March, Fédon orders a group of 100 insurgents to simultaneously attack the east coast village of Grenville and the west coast town of Goyave. In Grenville, Fédon leads the group and they force 20 white residents from their beds. The town is looted, houses and cellars are raided, alcohol is consumed. The 20 prisoners are then taken to the marketplace where they are shot and their bodies are cut to pieces with cutlasses. The murders are cheered by the freed slaves, who are now kind of drunk. Fidon takes some hostages back to his base at Belvedere Estate. Meanwhile, in Goyeve, the other west coast town, a similar attack takes place. Now, I'm going to tell you that story. It's going to be told from the perspective of one person, Dr. John Hay. <laughs> Okay, so what follows is kind of an eyewitness account of what happened on, on that night and beyond. It is from a guy called Dr. John Hay. It is from his book, which he called A Narrative of the Insurrection in the Island of Grenada, which took place in 1795. Titles have come a long way, haven't they, since since back in the day. You won't believe this one trick to <laughs> it's not insurrection. Clickbait. It's just fact. <laughs> fact bait. Okay, so let me take you back in time. It's Monday. It's the 2nd of March. It's 1795. It's 9pm. Oh, it's early evening. John Hay gets a knock on the door. Oh, could that be? John is a resident of the colony. He's a doctor. He is also the British commander of the St. John's Regiment in Grenada. So he's a pretty influential chap. He answers the door and there's a bunch of other colonists there. And they are concerned. Oh, hey guys, what's They're up? They're super worried. He's like, hey, hey, guys, guys, chill, chill, whoa, 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 one at a time, one at a time. Come on in. Let's talk. So he invites them in. They start to tell him that they have suspicions that, that there might be an attack incoming. 
And he's like, what do you mean? Some of them say that a canoe had arrived to the island earlier in the afternoon carrying a strange man of mixed race alongside two natives of Grenada. He's told that that evening there had been a meeting of the free people at the Belvedere estate. He's told that most of the town's free people were away from their homes. So he's like, this is a bit odd. So he steps outside his home and he looks up and down the street and he's like, you know what? The town is uncommonly quiet with many doors shut. That's the classic movie. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Too quiet. <laughs> yeah. So he considers. And he's like, okay, guys, look. Guys. 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 <laughs> it's late, right? Come on. It's late in the evening now. It's probably 10 o'clock by the time they've had that chat and he's gone outside and had a look. You know, any trouble that's going to be had, it's not going to be happening now, right? It's so late at night. Who attacks at night? Come Crazy. on. So uh, he also says, well, look, you know, well, what are we going to do? It's just like me and you guys and the, the regiment that, that we need, you know, that I'm in charge of, 32 English soldiers, 13 commissioned officers, 46 adopted subjects and 86 free black people. They are kind of spread across the island. It's like a distance of like 10 miles to get word to them and to get them all like dressed and ready and back to town and tell them what's going on and prepare and everything. Like by the time that's all going to happen, it's going to be the morning anyway. So look. Let's go to bed. We'll deal with this in the morning. It's good advice. Let's just get some sleep. Come on, everything will be fine. So, everyone is sent home to bed. John gets changed into his nightshirt. He conducts his ablutions. Uh, he snuffs out his candles. And then he gets into bed and he falls asleep. I now pass you to Dr. John Hay, who will recount what happens next. About midnight, or very early next morning, I was awaked by a violent rapping in my back gallery and at my chamber door. It was moonlight. And upon opening it a little, I perceived a number of armed men. Without being able to distinguish who they were, I immediately shut the door, bolted it, took my pistols from the brackets on the partition and jumped from the window into the street. I attempted to escape, but found myself surrounded with a number of colored men armed with muskets, bayonets and cutlasses all of whom I knew by sight. Sylvain Dragon made a thrust at me with his bayonet, by which I was slightly wounded in my wrist. He then cocked his piece and persecuted it to my breast, but was ordered not to fire by Etienne Verture, my next door neighbor, who they had styled captain. Uncertain of their intentions, I, I called to him if it was my life they were for, to which he replied, no, and ordered me to surrender my arms. In the instant, my arms were pinioned by men behind me whom I couldn't see, and my pistols rested from my hands. Under such circumstances, resistance would have been folly in the extreme, and to attempt an escape would have been attended with instant death. I therefore submitted and inquired the cause of such unprovoked violence to which he answered that the national troops had landed. They detained me a considerable time in the street in my shirt, notwithstanding every remonstrance that I could make to be permitted to put on my clothes. In the meantime, the French coloured women were enjoying the scene from their windows, seemingly with much satisfaction. I didn't have any trousers on, but the ladies loved it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I took away from that primarily. The whole thing, that's what you took away. The ladies loved me and my nightshirt. That the, he no, that that he chose to tell that part of the story in that way. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the theme of panic, you might understand that he was verily panicked. He leapt out of the window, brandishing his pistols in nothing but an undershirt. Yeah. There are a few questions in life in which the answer is so critical. But one of them is, are you here to kill me? That no must be like, oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then, okay, but what do you want? I mean, I'm still in trouble here. Yeah, but you're still in trouble. You're not here to kill me, which is, that's good news, right? Yeah, it is. Helps with the panic. So what happens next? Well, John Hay, he's marched with a number of other hostages to Belvedere Estate. There he is held captive in a small room, which he describes as having barred windows, and there being about 40 other prisoners at the same time. So these are now prisoners. The next day, Tuesday, 3rd of March. In the morning, the guards step aside from the main door and into their cell walks Julien Fedon. Ah, Fedon, we meet at last. Whom his people refer to as the general. 
Fedon tells the hostages that they need not expect swift rescue because the rebels were, in his words, perfectly acquainted with the mode of making war in the woods. A little war, right. He then orders Dr. John Hay to attend to some of his wounded soldiers. They had been injured in the night's fighting. John realises that he has basically only been spared because of his use as a doctor to the rebellion. So, escorted, John travels across the island, tending to most of Fidon's men. Each night, he's brought back to the prison cell in Belvedere, and every night, he and the prisoners for the next few days are served the exact same food. Boiled beef and plantains. You are now going to experience life as a prisoner in Belvedere Estate. Oh my god. Because I've cooked you some delicious, delicious boiled Boiled beef beef and and plantain. plantain. So give me one second Mm. and I'll prepare it. Let's play some music. Okay, we'll play some music. So prison music. Okay, so here we are. Uh, it's feeding time here in HHE Studios, and we're going to mimic what uh, Dr. John Hay and the prisoners were given. So on my tray here are two coconut bowls, and what you could describe as, as food in here. So here we go. I'm going to give yours. Okay, the bowl is very hot. It's a little uh, coconut shell. There's a little wooden spoon. Yeah, you don't want, I don't want to give you a fork or a knife. No, that, otherwise I could be... On my way out, having stabbed you to death with my fork. Okay, so let me describe before you eat, because it's quite hot, let it cool down a little bit. Okay, I had some help because I read boiled beef and plantain and just assumed that you'd put some water on the boil, throw in some beef and maybe a, a plantain, which is the green banana-y looking vegetable. Or is it a fruit? I don't know. So I went on to Reddit and there is a subreddit there called Ask Food Historians. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and... it's handy. <laughs> it was, and one of the users on there came forward and helped me with my request, which was a bit odd and a bit specific, as you can imagine. The user is uh, Doxycycline, and they have just been fantastic. They gave me the best instructions on what to do, the kinds of food it was, and they, they took this from uh, the perspective of a grenade and dish called Oil Down, which has a lot more ingredients to it. It's a lot more flavorsome, a lot more nutritious. But the expectation is, is that this would be an evolution of bull beef and plantain, which right. is what here. So they've just added, continued to add things to this dish to make it more delicious. Boiled beef would be corned beef, as in like oh, what right. you get in a tin okay. or salt beef. Um, it wouldn't be like a lump of meat, which is what I thought. That's what I thought too. Yeah, no, it's not. So in our dish here, we have corned beef from the tin. So because this is for prisoners, doxycycline says that the corned beef in it is more for flavouring than as the main dish. Um, So there's not a tremendous amount in here. The plantains are going to be green because they're, they're not right. You know, it's prisoner food. It's boiled over an open fire, so green dasheen leaves are used. Dasheen is a, a root vegetable, and it's the leaves that grow off the top of that. So they're used to line the bottom of the pot to stop it from the food from scorching. You'll see I some see dasheen leaves. I see little leaves are, bits. You've got the dasheen leaves in here. I went to a, a Caribbean supermarket, and I was able to buy all of the ingredients that <laughs> yeah. I needed, so I was so happy. Did you explain they were for your prisoner? I did say it was for my prisoner, yeah. <laughs> And there is some breadfruit in there because at the time there was lots of it. It was right across the Caribbean and everybody had it. So, you know, we, we, we've thrown some in there as well. There are no spices added to this because prisoners. And there is water instead of coconut milk. So oil down usually has coconut milk in it. This would just have water, um, mainly because... Prisoner. Prisoner. I have added, and this was suggested, to add a scotch bonnet pepper. So I've added one in here, just one. Um, but I know you have issues with taste and smell and stuff. So I thought maybe to give you a little bit of extra flavor in there, <laughs> I'd probably give you something. So there is one Scotch bonnet pepper in there. Perhaps maybe their cook was feeling a little bit generous. One day they just threw an extra Scotch pepper in there. But Dr. Cycline does suggest that this is served hot with a side of sadness. So, <laughs> which, and so, I mean, describe it. What, do you, what does it look like to well, you? Does you it look enjoy sad? lumps. 
I've got uh, the dish for you. There's a lump of this sort of banana-y looking plantain, a couple of lumps of that, a mm-hmm. couple of lumps of uh, the breadfruit. There's little bits of, like I would have said it's a sort of almost cabbage looking green leaf in there. There's a sort of greyish colour to it, a greyish tinge to everything. I, w- I wasn't expecting it to be quite so grey. There's a lot of grey. <laughs> this is boiled for two hours. Two uh, hours? Yeah. The recipe called for three hours, but I halved the amount of ingredients, so I've, I've only boiled it for two. Okay. I'm going in. I'm okay. going to try my first I'm try lump. some too. It's kind of stewy, isn't it? Mm. It's got like a weak, watery stew feel to it. I mean, it really looks like something out of a movie. Sort of lumps with the watery stew. and I feel like Pirates of the Caribbean could feature this quite comfortably. Okay, I'm going into the breadfruit Scotch now. Scotch pepper is kicking in, yeah, I'll be honest. I can definitely get this. The pepper is making himself known. Whew. Maybe the cook didn't like us so much after all. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it should be boiled probably within an inch of its life. It should just be mush. And uh, this plantain is still quite crunchy. Quite firm, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, what's this? I've encountered... In, oh, it's a bit of breadfruit. Covered in the sheen leaves. Here we go. It's actually not too bad. I kind of wish I hadn't put the scotch pepper in doing just a lot to of taste. Work, is it? It's doing a lot of work there. Yeah. Now, how would you fancy this as breakfast, lunch and dinner? I mean, it's nice for one meal, but can I just have some uh, special K for tomorrow, please? Good news, it's beef and plantain again. You'd think with the French being in charge, the food would be um, pretty good. I think you've done well here. This is nice. Actually, I quite like it. Um, although, that's almost entirely because of the pepper. <laughs> the pepper is doing a job of work. Well, we're both tucking into it, so we can't be that bad. I know. It? Neither of us are going, oh, no, I can't possibly <laughs> yeah. eat that. I'm like, mm, all right. yeah. There you go. That's prisoner food. Mm. Okay. Right. While you're continuing to eat. How long can I stay? <laughs> <laughs> while you continue to eat, I will um, continue to read on. Where's my rum? <laughs> Am I still a prisoner? You're a prisoner. You can have water. Do you want water? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, no filtered water. You get tap water. It's only brackish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> I'd be an amazing prisoner. I'm really servile at the best of times. <laughs> okay. Friday, 6th of March. So they've been there for three or four days. At midday, to shouts of Vive la République! Jean-Pierre Fedon, who is brother of the general, he arrives at Belvedere Estate and he is dragging along behind him the island's governor, Ninian Home, and James Campbell, the man who sold Belvedere Estate to Fedon in 1791. These two men are perhaps the most senior people on the island. This is a huge win for Fedon. Fedon orders the governor to be clapped in irons manacles around their wrists and ankles but the man is too fat and so and so he is tied up instead and laid down on a mattress Fedon demands that the governor deliver up the island to them or else and home refuses dr hay says that he uh, would never sign any order which would disgrace his memory which is bold move i think at that point Especially with me in the background going, I'll sign anything, mate. I've got a bit more of this spoiled beef stuff and I'll uh, <laughs> sign on the dotted line. <laughs> wherever you want. <laughs> so he also points out that now that he's captured, his authority has ceased, right? If Fedon wants to take a claim up on the island, he needs to do that with His Majesty's forces. That's a nice veiled foot, that, isn't it? It is. And as to the lives of the prisoners, he says, well, you know what? That's down to you, Fedon. You decide what you're going to do with them, not me. I'm not the governor anymore. The governor does, however, agree to write a letter to the authorities on behalf of all 43 prisoners now, and Fidon reads the letter and he is not satisfied at all, saying, we Republicans dislike equivocation. Ooh, equivocation. Demanding a more explicit letter without delay. I want to know what he said now. Things are not going great right now. Um, Got a new friend. But how are you? (laughs) Uh, So the governor says, all right, fine, I'll rewrite it. Give me until the morning to write it properly. Fedon orders his second in command to kill everyone if anyone tries to escape or any of their posts outside of Belvedere Estate get attacked. Dr. John Hay, he describes the scene in the room at that moment. He says, the guard's fury appeared to be wrought up to the highest pitch. His eyes sparkled fire. Every feature, every gesture plainly denoted with what anxiety he panted to satiate his ferocious rage by imbruing his hands in the blood of innocent men. With one foot on the threshold of the prison door and the other out of it, a pistol in one hand and a dagger in the other, saying, I require no other weapons but those in my hands to execute your orders. 
Another guard at the same time was drawn up before the door with cocked firelocks and half-charged bayonets. Many of the prisoners shrieked and called for mercy, conceiving the bloody order was to be immediately put in execution. The governor gently reprimanded them and begged they would behave like men. A night spent under such awful and gloomy apprehensions can neither be so easily imagined or described. But other than that, how was your stay at Airbnb, Grenada? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty scary stuff, right? You, you could say there was a lot of panic in that room at that point. I think you're very solid on the whole. The whole. The whole thing is panic, really. Okay, so good. I don't think you need to press this point. Just I think thought I would do it anyway. Firmly established, this is a <laughs> panic situation. It's pretty panicky. Yeah. So the next morning, it's now the sixth of March, and the governor, Ninian Holm, has drafted the letter. And the letter reads thusly: Gentlemen. General Julian Fedon, commander of the French Republican troops, which are now of considerable number, did last night uh, communicate to me the answer which he has received from the President and Council to the declaration sent them by him and the prisoners, who are 43 and number, have requested that I would acquaint you with the said General Fedon's positive declaration made to me and the rest of the prisoners, which is briefly as follows that the instant an attack is made on the post where the prisoners are now contained, that that instant every one of the prisoners shall be put to death. The same orders have also been regularly given to us every night since we have been prisoners. We therefore hope you will take this, our representation, into your most serious consideration <laughs> and not suffer, if possible, the lives of so many innocent persons to be sacrificed. Signed by 43 prisoners. P.S. Oh, the P.S. Yeah. Nice. General Fedon is of opinion that I have not sufficiently expressed his sentiments in the full manner he wishes should have been done, and requests me to add that he expects all the fortifications to be delivered up to him on an honourable capitulation. So... John Hay expands on the moments when the governor hands the letter to Fedon. The governor was determined that if we should fall victims to their fury, we propose to request only one favour of the general, which was that we should be shot and not put to death by poniards and pikes. Not a huge request, is it? Do you mind shooting us rather than stabbing us to death? Side note, the president and council of Grenada did receive that letter and later responded to Fedon, saying... The proposition was so horrid, it was difficult to conceive that any wearing even the form and semblance of humankind should have exceeded. It requires but one answer, that we are all equally willing to spill the last drop of our blood rather than disgrace eternally ourselves and our country by a concession to a, a man capable of such a proposition. We desire that no further communication of the same nature may be attempted. So, so what I'm reading there is, we are determined to sacrifice as many prisoners as it takes <laughs> to resist you. Yeah, and they're totally cool with it. So despite promising, Fedon does not share that response with the governor and the prisoners. The prisoners end the day with a small bowl of boiled beef and plantain. Nom nom nom. Nom nom nom. Saturday, 7th of March. All the free black people have now joined Fidon's movement. Dr. John Hay describes, Numbers of black men, principally French, were continually coming in and were generally armed with pikes, some mounted with iron, others hardwood, burnt and pointed, about eight feet long. They were commonly employed in foraging parties under the command of the captain of their own colour to bring in cattle and plantains. But at night, their yells and war songs were so dreadful that it added to our almost perpetual challenges and sleep was almost impossible, particularly in a situation so excessively cold without either mattress or covering of any sort. That is not to say that the rebels were aligned and a cohesive unit, Dr. John Hay says. Acts of violence committed amongst themselves were carefully concealed from prisoners. For example, I was informed out of doors that a French planter of the name Solier had some words with a coloured captain of the name Ragon. He, with one or two strokes of a cutlass, nearly severed Solier's head from his body. He fell dead at his feet. In attempting to interfere, one guard shared the same fate. Ragon was instantly shot on the spot. So this is the world that Dr. John Hay and these prisoners are living in. Tense environment, isn't it? Enjoy the chants and the whooping and the... Kill the prisoners! <laughs> Monday the 9th, 
In our situation, I thought everything should be attempted, whether it was the smallest prospect or probability of being the means of obtaining our freedom and relieving us from the confinement so pregnant with danger from the savage ferocity of our guards and enemies. Our hopes barely kept alive by the expectation of a force soon arriving from England to affect our deliverance. I mean, that's a mixed blessing, isn't it? That they're coming to save us, but they're also doing the exact thing that will trigger our executions. Indeed, yeah. Friday 13th of March. Friday 13th. I mean, how much worse can things get? <laughs> well, a new prisoner enters. His name is William Kerr. And uh, he had been living with the French white people in Fedon's house, where he said that there was no room and that he preferred being with the prisoners. Dr. John Hay therefore thinks that perhaps he is a spy. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I'm hardly the most astute person, but I'm like, that does none of that sounds even remotely plausible. Well, John Hay says that this isn't the first time this happens either. We were therefore much on our guard for the first two or three days. A similar attempt had been made before to impose upon us by a Frenchman named Graham. <laughs> Well, I'm already suspicious <laughs> uh, a Frenchman named Graham, frankly. Who was sent in as a prisoner, but we very soon discovered his intentions. Although he pretended to be much afflicted and cried at his entrance among us, towards the evening he left us abruptly with a loud laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I oh wasn't Graham. <laughs> I was never Le Graham. <laughs> We shouldn't laugh, it's terrible, but yeah, so there you go. So it sounds like William Kerr was sent in to listen to their private conversations. I mean, these guys, cover story-wise, don't seem to have this the skills that one would hope for. Well, what happened? Well, it was crowded, so I said I'd rather be with the prisoners. That's <laughs> <laughs> a paper-thin cover story, isn't it? Yeah. So, Tuesday 17th of March. The prisoners are roused, they're told to get up, to collect their things, and to leave the cell. And they are marched across the island, past a battlefield where the English army is there, and they're facing off against the rebels. Ooh. So they, they watch this happening. One of the majors in the rebel army comes over and tells the prisoners' guards that the general has given orders to put the prisoners to death. Oh. Yeah. Dr. John Hay. Many of the coloured people seemed eager to carry out the orders, immediately cocking and presenting their muskets. But, says the Major, notwithstanding the English are the common enemies to liberty and mankind, more especially to those of our colour whom they have tyrannised over for many years and treated with cruelty hitherto without example, yet we will convince you, and the world besides, that Republicans can conquer and be generous at the same time, and notwithstanding the positive orders of the General, I take upon myself to spare your lives. A white man, whose name I forget, lamented that he could not have the pleasure of cutting off all of our heads, or the heads of the whole nation at a blow. Tense. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. The prisoners are told to keep on marching, and they spend a couple of nights sleeping outdoors, exposed to heavy rain and high winds, without any cover. Sunday 22nd of March, the prisoners continue to march across the island and up to the peak of a hillside. They discover at the top that there is a new prison that has been built for them in an old coffee store. It is 22 feet long and 13 feet wide, with stocks made, you know, for your feet, uh, you know, those holes in, in the wood that you put your feet through and locked in. Dr. John Hay describes the room. We were then 47 in number, and there was only two hammocks. There was not room for more than 28. The rest were either obliged to stand or sleep on the wet ground beneath. During the three days we were lodged, we suffered the greatest hardships for want of water. We cast the night without sleep, as may easily be conceived from cold and want of room to lie down. To add to our misery, during a heavy rainfall we found the house leaked all over the roof, which was only thatched with very thin green leaves and branches of trees. About this time we learned from our guard's conversation that a letter had been brought to Fidon, concluding in the following terms. Strike hard, exterminate the English. They are the common enemies of liberty and the rights of man. All getting a little bit spooky and scary. I'm still, I'm still trying to imagine the struggle, the <clears throat> debates about who gets the hammock. There's 47 of them, two hammocks. Like, whose turn is it? Yeah, pretty miserable. I expect. I'm, I'm pretty sure that coffee smell disappears when there's 47 people in the room <laughs> at all times. So Monday, 23rd of March. One of our guards entered the prison with a hammer in his hand and first ordered the governor, then seven others, to put their feet in the stocks, in which number I was included. There was only room for eight at that time. 
He seemed to execute the order with great satisfaction, making some remark on everyone as they were put in. As I had been indisposed for some days before from a bowel complaint, I took upon me to write to the General in the afternoon to the following purport. Citizen General, the complaint I have laboured under for some days still continues, which renders my present confinement very inconvenient. I therefore beg you will order my enlargement, and I hope, at the same time, you will be pleased to extend your clemency to the rest of my fellow prisoners. The prison door is always locked at sunset. So hard were they and deaf to every human feeling that they could hardly be prevailed on to open the door afterwards if the calls of nature required a prisoner to go out. One captain was particularly to be pitied, who had laboured under a diarrhoea from the first of his confinement. They often proposed to shoot him, to rid them of the trouble of opening the door so often at night. Imagine being stuck in stocks and... Dickie tummy. ...need to go. <laughs> right, so, 7th of April. The prisoners have now been in their new home for 17 days. 7th of April, though, they start to hear cannons, and the cannons are like, blasting away for over an hour, so there's a huge battle going on. On the 8th of April, the cannons have stopped and guns can be heard, which means that the British can get closer. The prisoners are immediately ordered inside the, the shed and the doors are locked. The whole guard are put under arms. The British are now attacking Belvedere Estate. John Hay and the others overhear a voice saying that the prisoners are to be shot. Some, who did not perfectly understand French, asked me if it was not so, to which I made no reply. Another guard said it would not take place till the general came up himself, during which time the door was frequently opened and frequently shut with great violence. The guards appeared very much agitated, trembling with impatience, and some seemed to have their guns cocked. A few prisoners called out mercy, but there was no reply. Others, who were not in stocks, were on their knees, praying. Not a word was exchanged amongst us. We all knew an attack from that quarter must fail of success, which would not only prolong our misery, but endanger our lives. Finally, the door was opened. Two men appeared with hammers to take the prisoners out of stocks. Those who were not in confinement were ordered to go out. I was near the door and immediately obeyed. The general was on a battery about 20 yards distant. He called me to come up. I heard a musket go off before I reached him. Upon looking behind me, I saw Peter Thompson make nearly two steps forward and then drop down, seemingly motionless. I flew to Fidon in order to try, if I could, to prevail upon him to have mercy on the innocent. They have none on our people below, he replied. I then applied to his second-in-command, who said they had no influence whatsoever over him, and he began the bloody massacre in presence of his wife and daughters, who remained there unfeeling spectators of his horrid barbarity. He gave the word, fo, to every man as soon as he came out, and of fifty-one prisoners, only Parson McMahon, Mr. William Kerr, and myself were saved. They all bore their fate like men and Christians, and, except a young boy of twelve years of age, I did not hear a word from one of them. Dr Carruthers attempted to run and was shot at about fifty yards distance from the prison. I think it is probable he counted them as they came out, because when the last was shot, he lighted his cigar and walked with great indifference backwards and forwards on the battery. Addressing himself to me, he said, You need to be under no apprehension for your safety as long as I live, but you may be obliged sometimes to shift your quarters. As soon as the prisoners are removed, you shall be lodged for tonight in the same prison. A man came up and observed to him that some of the prisoners were not quite dead. He desired they might be dispatched with cutlasses and bayonets. Immediately the orders were executed with cutlasses and pikes while the prisoners lay in a pile before the prison door, crawling over one another in the agonies of death. Well, there's your panic again. Um, that's hard telling. There's an interesting element to this, though, which is 
he doesn't seem to be asking himself at any point why they can hate them so much or think these are things we've essentially visited upon them in the past and perhaps there's a reason why they're this annoyed with us. I also just want to point out that this is an eyewitness testimony from you know one of only three men that survived this and we only have his word for exactly what happened and you know it's entirely possible that some element of this might have been perhaps exaggerated or as an element of propaganda later. Although uh, it must be said uh, he, he, he seems to have done Fedon relatively fairly in that the answer they have none on us below is pretty solid rejoinder isn't it (laughs) absolutely and i'm not saying that is the case i'm just saying we should bear that in mind yeah we shouldn't take just because he wrote it it as being gospel truth and we have to remember who the audience was for this when it was written probably not revolutionaries probably not no Okay, so when all of the prisoners were dead, Fidon ordered that they be buried under the doorway of the prison. And so they were. Uh, It turns out later the grave was actually disturbed by wild pigs who were rooting for food. So of the 47 prisoners, 44 were dead and three remained. Parson McMahon, who was apparently much loved uh, amongst the prisoners, Dr. John Hay and William Kerr, the one that was suspected of being the spy. John Hay says in... Which does not help the suspicion factor of one (laughs) iota, does it? John Hay points that out and says (laughs) he wasn't sure why he survived. Fadon then renames this camp Camp of Death and Belvedere as the Camp of Liberty. So, right, what happens in the next year? Dr. John Hay escapes to Guadeloupe, where he stays until the rebellion ends. I'm skipping over this bit because panic was the story and that was the story I wanted to tell. But John Hay manages to escape to Guadeloupe and he stays there until the rebellion finishes. Uh, And what happens is this bizarre year-long sort of standoff between the rebels and uh, and the British. There are several skirmishes, but nothing really major. Maybe it was just they were both prepping for a bigger war that was to come, so they were just taking time to take stock. But we do think that yellow fever likely contributed to this as well. By the summer of 1795, the British army had lost two-thirds of its troops to yellow fever, with one British brigadier general, uh, a guy called Colin Lindsay, who was so ravaged with yellow fever that he left the camp, went out into the rain and shot himself. It was said that his position was worsened by, and I quote, the nightmare of heat and mosquitoes, barbarous shouts and sudden volleys from hidden assailants. So not an ideal scenario to find yourself on that island. So 18th of June, 1796, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Fidon and the rebels are cornered. They're in their base, the Camp of Death, up the mountain. And during the night of 18th of June, the British, uh, with a troop of German marines called the Jaeger Battalion, Uh, They leave their campfires burning and then start to creep up the mountain in their small groups using their swords as scaling ladders. And as they're moving, they neutralise the rebel outposts as they go. It's described as the light infantry scrabbled through the woods, getting behind trees and taking a pot shot when they could get an opportunity. They breach Fedon's camp with pretty much no resistance. Fedon's wife is killed in the skirmish then, and Fedon kills his remaining hostages, which he has taken over the past few months. These are British soldiers, which were captured during foraging expeditions looking for food. He stripped them, tied them up and shot them. Rather than be captured, the rebels, including Fidon, throw themselves down the steep hillside to death or to escape. Fidon launched himself down a place where no man dare venture after him. His object, and that of the few remaining in the woods, was to get off in a canoe. We had destroyed several that were preparing for that purpose. And that's what happened. So Fidon's army is obliterated. The British lose nine men uh, with about 55 wounded, but Fidon's army is, is pretty much gone. Nine days later, any remaining rebels have all surrendered. Did, did Fidon survive the fall and get my, away? My next section. All what right. happened to Fidon? What happened to Fidon? Well, we don't know is the answer. But we do know that the army found a compass in an upturned rowboat that was pointed towards Trinidad, suggesting that he had drowned attempting to join his sister there. And in fact, Fidon was last seen on the 27th of June. So some time afterwards, in 1815, the governor of Trinidad reported that Fidon had been sighted in Cuba, but they didn't investigate that any further. And given that Fidon's relatives in Trinidad and Grenada, it's likely that he did survive and, and went into hiding. If he survived, you know, he was 
was basically living incognito. Keep your head down after that, really, wouldn't you? <laughs> and, and yeah, the myth is is that he's just waiting for his chance to come back and lead the ultimate rebellion. This is the classic. Yeah? We have King Arthur, the king across the water, who's going to come. Yeah, everyone everyone has one. That's why I guess a lot of places really want evidence the loss of an enemy. And he still is in the common thought today. Right? Oh, really? It's, absolutely. Fedon is not somebody that has been forgotten to time. And I think it's the fact that it was that failure to capture Fedon has created this sort of mythical status for him. It also created a sense of real long-term insecurity for the British when they were there because yeah, there somewhere. <laughs> they could come back at any point. Exactly. So post-rebellion, the British took about 18 months to restore order. It took quite a long time. 400 people were condemned. 200 were enslaved. 50 were executed by hanging and then decapitation. Some were gibbeted, you know, where you sort of put on like a, a cross out by the sea as a warning uh, to approaching ships. 38 rebel leaders were taken to towns where, after a nominal trial, they were publicly executed and their heads paraded around the island. Most of the white rebels, though, you'll be pleased to hear, were reprieved. Yeah, so that's what they meant by mercy, wasn't it? <laughs> Very much a one-sided affair. <laughs> yeah, a few of them, though, were exiled to South America. Oh, dear, shame. So, uh, unbelievable. Uh, approximately 25% of the island's slave population, about 7,000 people, were killed in those two years. But many remained free. And when Dr. John Hay returned from Guadeloupe, he says, I was dismayed by the numbers of the enslaved who had taken up casual residence in the town. The island's economy was devastated. Total cost came to around about two and a half million pounds. It's about 54 million pounds in today's money, which is about 100 million dollars. And that is the story of panic in Grenada during 1750 to 1800. That wasn't a terrific story you found there. That was certainly panicky. I thought it's an interesting mix of you know, who's the hero. Everyone was behaving in pretty much the same way. Everyone killed all the prisoners on every side, it would seem. The food was delicious up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> Every day for a month is probably not great. No, I thought that was a terrific piece of work, though, Mr. Ryan Weir. Thank you uh, very much. Very fascinating and uh, time well spent. Thanks. Do you want your run back? Yes, please. Okay. have an awful lot of boiled beef and plantain left good so do feel free <laughs> tuck in <laughs> mm. and if you're interested in following along at home and trying to make yourself some boiled beef and plantain uh, i will make sure that the recipe is put onto the summary notes for this episode and uh, again huge huge thanks to doxycycline uh, from this side of the podcast, we recommend treat yourself not like a prisoner, throw a little extra spice in, you'll thank yourself later. I'll also put the ingredients for the Grenada rum punch. He said, whilst slurping on the rum punch, I'll, as long as you sober up before you do that. So that is our show for this week. Normally we would do some desolation for the next episode, but this is, of course, the out of office, so we will return to normal service in the near future. But in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or you just want to say hello, you can reach out to us on any of the main social media. You can come to our website, which is hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And, uh, you know, one way to definitely feature on the show, of course, is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So if you enjoy this, go along to Apple Podcasts and just plug your little review in there. Just say, hey, I like these guys. It really helps us and it helps bring other people along to the show. Meanwhile, if you're on TikTok or Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us under the username at HHE Podcast. If you subscribe to those, then you get a little alert when we do these little one minute animated bites that we do, which is well worth 60 seconds of your time, I think. In the meantime, if you can't get enough, you need more, check out the back catalogue of episodes, which you can find in any of your podcast apps, YouTube or the website, which again is HHEPodcast.com. Yeah, and we're going to be back with our regularly scheduled episode. Just as soon as we're back from the island paradise, we're currently holidaying in when we're tanned and looking handsome. Oh, we're having surgery as well, are we? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, a huge thanks to Ryan. And uh, I think that's it. I guess all that is left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Out of office... Hey, Ryan.
Hey, Pete. I just wanted to say that I really loved this episode. Oh, thanks, man. Honestly, the sound effects were amazing. They really added to the drama. They really ratcheted up the tension. Oh, you think so? That's great. Um, yeah, actually, I've got this new bit of kit that, um, well, it adds the sound effects automatically. So you just say something and it puts sound to it. Uh, like, check this out. My name is Ryan Weir. Oh my god, that is so cool. <laughs> right? Well, all right, let me have a go. My name is Pete Goddard. Boo! Wait, hang on, what? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's probably just the software, you know? It just, it just takes time to calibrate to the voice. Oh, right, 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 right. Now, let's try it again. Uh, my name is Ryan Weir. <laughs> Nice. Okay, my name is Pete Goddard. Boo! Oh, what the hell? My name is Pete Goddard. Boo! My, my name is Peter Goddard. Boo! Oh, this is ridiculous. Your system's broken. It must... Hang on. Wait, why do you keep pushing buttons over there on that? Oh, uh, I, um... Are you, are you doing this? What? Are you putting sounds over my voice? No. You are, aren't you? Yeah. Fine, I'm not staying here to be insulted. Ryan, I'm still here. You can't just sound affect me away. Fine, I'll leave. Ryan, you're still there. I can see you across the table. You can't just sound affect yourself away either. Oh my god, it's the cops! You're an idiot.